Octavio, can you tell me exactly how you left Nicaragua? Perfectly. I have very vivid memories. Octavio Enriquez is a Nicaraguan journalist with more than 20 years of experience. He works for Confidencial and is a member of the editorial board of the platform Conectas. His work has earned him the Ortega y Gasset and Rey de España awards. But that's not what he mentions first when you ask him to introduce himself. First and foremost, Octavio describes himself as a reporter. And he explains that he likes to say it that way because, to him, that word implies that you're on the hunt for stories. More than a title, I'm very proud to feel like a reporter, especially in a country with a situation as difficult as Nicaragua. Conditions for journalists in Nicaragua have been difficult for years, but for Octavio, the inflection point came in 2021. At the time, he was teaching journalism classes, and while it wasn't known publicly, he was working with an investigative team looking into the properties and holdings of Ortega and the presidential family. Look, Nicaragua was in a very scary moment of tension at that time. There was a lot of anxiety among all of us journalists and the general public because the police were making a series of arrests. I am talking about June 2021, which is the pre-election stage. Daniel Ortega se defiende de quienes le acusan dentro y fuera de Nicaragua de perseguir a las voces disidentes to accuse candidates, pre-candidates, and Ortega's possible competitors. También han sido detenidos otros líderes opositores como ex-cancilleres, ex-guerrilleros. So in this context of the arrests, they began to arrest dozens of journalists, first summoning them to the prosecutor's office. I was one of them. They summoned him as a witness in a case against the Violeta Barrios de Chamorro Foundation. That's where Octavio taught journalism classes. The foundation was run by Cristiana Chamorro, a very well-known journalist who had launched a bid for president. According to a Sid Gallup poll, she had become the opposition leader with the best odds of beating Daniel Ortega. But she couldn't run. They accused her, among other things, of laundering money in her role at the foundation. And she has spent every day since under house arrest. Suddenly working in journalism or giving classes was seen by the ruling party as a crime and a means to stigmatize us, saying that we received money from foreign powers, from the empire. What they were trying to do was erode journalists' credibility, but at that time no one knew what was going to happen in Nicaragua. That is, the arrests began, but where is this going? After that there were no guarantees to do any type of journalism in Nicaragua. Taking pictures, conducting an interview, it became a scary business because they could detain you. I faced a very difficult decision. I talked to my wife and I told her, look, I think I have to leave. At some point the police are going to knock on my door. I was going to end up in jail. And at that point, there wasn't much time to think anymore. Everyone was looking for a way out. So at that moment I said, who's the one putting the family at risk? It's me. I'll never forget the date because I left the day after Father's Day in Nicaragua. We got together and, 
instead of it being a celebration, well, my children were so young, and it was a farewell. They didn't know that I was leaving, and we had dinner. For their whole lives, pizza has been their favorite dish. We ate a pizza and then it was my turn to tell them that I was leaving. And I remember it was like a stab wound that I gave myself when I told him that if something happened in that climate of uncertainty, that they should never feel ashamed of their father because I wasn't doing anything wrong, I was on the right side of history. To say it and talk about it even so much later because I had to leave at night. Like anyone else who had done something incorrect, except I had never done anything wrong. But to not drag the story on, I cried for my children all the way before leaving Nicaragua. Octavio is one of the more than 160 journalists exiled from Nicaragua since 2007. The regime of Daniel Ortega has closed 54 news outlets, more than half of them in the last year. It has confiscated another three that continue to operate as digital news pages in exile. That and 11 Nicaraguan journalists were arrested. But even so, many continue. Even in the prosecutor's office, when I attended, I told my colleagues and I continue to maintain that the best antidote against authoritarianism, not against what we were seeing, was to continue doing good journalism. Things have been terrible in Nicaragua, but we decided that we had to keep talking about it. Welcome to El Hilo, a podcast from Radio Ambulante Studios and Vice News. I'm Silvia Viñas. And I'm Roman Gressier, a reporter from El Faro English, filling in for Eliezer Budasov. Attacks on journalism aren't unique to Nicaragua. La policía de Guatemala detuvo el viernes 29 de julio al presidente y fundador del diario El Periódico. Los teléfonos de más de la mitad de los periodistas del Faro fueron colonizados por Pegasus, un software israelí que solo se vende a gobiernos. Today, the efforts to silence journalism in Central America and how the industry is surviving both inside these countries and from abroad. It's January 30th, 2023. As we heard just a few minutes ago, Octavio decided to leave Nicaragua at a critical moment for the country, before the presidential elections. Daniel Ortega was seeking his third consecutive re-election. You would go to bed and you didn't know who had been imprisoned. In 2020 during COVID, all the social media accounts of your friends had become a stream of obituaries. Well, that is, it was still found under someone's prisoner. People didn't even make any kind of political statement and they were still arrested. They were jailed without explanation. So they didn't even bother to create or try to create the semblance of a judicial process. No, in Nicaragua for a long time, they are more like judicial executions. They first capture you, and then they cook up a case against you. Since late 2020, a slate of laws have been approved to justify these detentions, like one of them called the Special Law of Cybercrime. 
to punish what they called fake news, right? And then, at any moment, you didn't even need to do anything, that would have to be clarified, but rather someone simply considered that you had reported fake news, and well, they could put you in jail. That's what has happened with most of us. They also accuse you of damaging national security. For posting a tweet, or for commenting on anything. There were cases where people were prosecuted and their trials were fabricated. At any given moment, for any of these circumstances I'm describing to you, I was going to be next. So in June 2021, he left the country. And you might be imagining a routine departure. Octavio and his family embracing and saying their goodbyes at the airport. But it wasn't like that. I left Nicaragua. I left not by legal borders, because they were confiscating passports. So what I feared was the possibility of being left without my papers. The other risk was that they would arrest me and send me back to Nicaragua, and I would become one of the country's political prisoners. There were so many risks. He first traveled to Colombia. Then he continued his investigation into the business of the Ortega family. What I told you earlier, about how a simple interview, a call, a photograph can mean jail time, was verified. In August, Octavio sent an email to Rosario Murillo, the wife of Daniel Ortega and vice president of the country, from his Confidencial email account. Mr. and Madam President and Vice President, we have these doubts. We asked her about the main findings of the investigation. I received a call four hours later, a call obviously from my family, telling me that two policemen had come to the house looking for me. That is to say, what I had foreseen when I left was unfortunately fulfilled. His wife and children had to leave home. They went to stay with relatives because it was no longer safe there. Octavio says that their house remains empty. At that moment, the first stage, intimidation, decided my exile. In the second stage, we became a family of exiles. In December 2021, Octavio and his family were reunited in Costa Rica. I told this story in a column. I took four shirts. We fit it all as best we could in a backpack before leaving. My children and wife Gloria did the same. We tried to pack as few clothes as possible because, well, when you have to hit the trails, you don't want heavy bags slowing you down. And that's how it happened. I wish I had a full dictionary of words to describe the moment when I was reunited with my children and Gloria, my wife. Frankly, it was a series of emotions and we had to start all over again. Look, I cannot deny that in this whole process, I felt afraid, uncertainty. There are not so many words, I don't know how to describe it. It was like a horde of feelings. The investigation that was consuming Octavio's time was published in February 2022, when his family had already left the country. Octavio, you're one of dozens of journalists, of the hundreds, let's say, of Nicaraguan journalists and activists to leave for exile. Can you explain the magnitude of the harassment that's causing this? People had to leave for their own safety. We decided that the best way to continue doing our work was to do it. 
from safe places. There are at least 20 independent media outlets working from exile. The large outlets were confiscated. Confidential, confiscated. La Prensa was confiscated too, and viciously. Because the regime not only imprisons journalists, it also confiscates the outlet's buildings and converts them, for example, into health clinics. Their justification was that these buildings had been confiscated from the coup media, and now they really benefited the people. That is the story from the ruling party. Octavio and other Nicaraguan journalists have mostly landed in Costa Rica, the United States, and Spain. And when those of us in exile meet, what we first share is our desire to return and our nostalgia, our yearning to walk our streets, chat with our neighbors. That is always a topic of conversation. I remember that when I told my wife, let's buy plants for the house, she responded, for what? What if we can return tomorrow to Nicaragua? It was the typical complaint. We in exile always talk about that. We ask how the children are doing, whether they're adjusting to the new school, how are they being treated. That's the type of conversations, and we try to make those spaces like a haven where we can talk about our life, our lives stolen by the dictatorship. Octavio and many exiled colleagues continue to expose the abuses of power in Nicaragua. And he says that day-to-day work feels about the same as in a newsroom working remotely. The key, says Octavio, is to cultivate sources and hold on to them. In an authoritarian context, these sources are a beacon guiding you through the darkness. They can be imprisoned too. They can be accused of spreading fake news or any of these despicable claims. In fact, they have continued to talk to us, so we have assumed our duty to protect our sources as much as possible. You were telling me recently, right, that your wife doesn't want to buy plants because she says, well, and if we go back? The question is, do you want to go back? And under what conditions could you? I want to go back and hug my mother. Of course I would like that. I would like to hug my uncles, my relatives, and my friends. But look, first, I am not able honestly to say that something is going to happen. I don't think anyone can tell you that something is going to happen and it's going to change all this. When those things happen, they happen in the most unexpected way. Exile has unexpected consequences, and even more so during the pandemic. When his brother died of COVID, his journalist colleagues were the ones to offer their support. And I never got to say goodbye to him. Maybe that would be the first thing I would do. Go leave him a flower. The Ortega regime has repressed journalists for years, but it's not the only one in Central America. After the break, how Nayib Bukele in El Salvador is borrowing from Ortega's playbook. Before we dive back into things, I want to invite you to subscribe to the El Faro English newsletter. Every week, we'll send you short, original briefs distilling the most pressing issues in Central America and its diasporas. 
We'll also send you the best of El Faro's award-winning, in-depth narrative journalism. You can subscribe by following the link in our Twitter bio at El Faro English. Plain and simple. We're back on El Hilo. In the last segment, we spoke to journalist Octavio Enriquez about how the regime of Daniel Ortega harasses journalists and forces them into exile. Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, is a young version of Ortega, a millennial spin-off. He understands how to use technology and social media to attack journalists and anyone who investigates, criticizes, or questions him. Less than two months ago, Reuters revealed what had been widely suspected, that behind the insults and threats on social media is a coordinated effort, a troll farm at the beck and call of Najib Bukele. They're people who manage anonymous Twitter accounts, praising the president and attacking his critics. According to sources who spoke with the agency on condition of anonymity, the work of the people behind the accounts is supervised by officials from the Bukele administration, and they sometimes worked in government offices. Their first comment is always to call me a gang member. That's Gabriela Cáceres. She's 30 years old and is an investigative journalist at El Faro. She specializes in corruption and gangs. And even though there is a technical explanation for why that's not true, the point is to discredit you. And what they say next is that they are going to find me on the street and they are going to rape me. They insult me threaten me that they are going to look for my family, that they already know where I live. Gabriela offered a recent example. She went to an award ceremony in Madrid at the end of last year to talk about press freedom. I only took a photo and posted a tweet so simple that it said, I came to talk about freedom of expression in El Salvador, and I had 500 insults. This is just an example. Gabriela says that this type of attack has caused her a lot of harm, fear, paranoia. So she decided to silence her notifications. Because you can't live life if you're scanning Twitter every second of the day. And some stranger signed a contract and is earning money for calling me mentally ill. Gabriela has a private Instagram account. And she says it's the only space where she can really use her social media. I'm young and I like to publish what I do. In fact, I limited myself a lot there too because they took one of my photos that I had on my Instagram, which was nothing, and they posted it. They used it to make memes, accusing her and other journalists at El Faro of having ties to politicians from the opposition, or to George Soros. It was to attack her work. And that happens whenever I publish something about the government. And Gabriela has published one of the most important investigations in recent years on the relationship between the Bukele administration and the gangs. With two colleagues at El Faro, Oscar Martinez and Carlos Martinez, Gabriela gained access to a part of an investigation by the Attorney General's office into negotiations between the Bukele administration and the gangs, MS-13, 18th Street Revolutionaries, and 18th Street Southerners. The investigation has to do, basically, with a pact. The gangs kept murders at historically low numbers in exchange for benefits for their members inside and outside of prison. 
El Faro had already reported on negotiations between the gangs and the Bukele administration in 2020, but Gabriela and her colleagues pushed even further, revealing that a group of five prosecutors had criminally investigated multiple government officials. They had photos, documents, testimony, and audio recordings. And these five prosecutors investigated the negotiations with the gangs, but also the acts of corruption that the officials were committing. They called it the cathedral case. It is a very large corruption plot, and the one that Bukele with his new prosecutor, basically. Sources have told us that the case has been shelved or eliminated. The attorney general who opened this case was removed by the legislative assembly controlled by Bukele's party, Nuevas Ideas. It was in May 2021, in their first legislative session. They also removed the five magistrates of the Constitutional Chamber. In their places, they put judges and an attorney general allied with Bukele. And in just a few weeks, the new top prosecutor dismantled the unit that was investigating the government officials. After you published, what were the consequences? There were many. I had never published a finding as strong as the negotiations, and I had only observed how my colleagues were experiencing that process in those years. But I never imagined the repercussions that it would have, and how my life changed very, very quickly. And the paranoia that the comments on Twitter began to cause me, for example, we came from a confinement that had made my house my only safe place, and I basically resorted to the same thing again, to take security measures and not go out much because they were following us. They wanted to know who we were talking to. The sources also began to distance themselves because they obviously did not want to be associated with me or with someone from El Faro, but above all the harms were psychological, the one they did apart from social media. Really. Later, through our sources, we found out that we were being investigated for revealing confidential information from Operation Cathedral. The prosecutor's office launched an investigation against the former prosecutors who were investigating the Bukele government. They raided the offices. They seized devices to determine the link between them and us. Gabriela and her colleagues learned about this investigation in January 2022, one year ago. That same month, it was made public that 22 members of El Faro, including Gabriela and myself, had been targeted with Pegasus, spyware from the Israeli company known as NSO Group. Pegasus allows the operator to completely control a cell phone, like intercepting calls and messages, and extract information held in the device. Cybersecurity experts detected 226 attacks against El Faro staff in 2020 and 2021. We handed over the devices. They did the technological things there that I don't understand. And they gave each of us a calendar with the dates of when the virus entered and left. According to El Faro, the first infection of Gabriela's phone happened in April 2021, and the attacks continued until September. When I went on a trip, the virus disappeared, and suddenly it came back. When there were protests against Bukele, I covered them both and there, the software, came in and out. They told us that Pegasus can turn on the camera to record by itself, which really worries me, because sometimes I leave my cell phone around. We already knew about the calls, because when we turned on the phone we heard a noise, but I now think that this is a government thing. 
NSO Group, the company that designed Pegasus, says that it only sells the software to governments and with the authorization of the Israeli Defense Ministry. The Bukele administration told Reuters that they are not NSO clients, that they are investigating the attacks and that some of their officials could have had their phones tapped too. At the end of November 2022, 15 members of El Faro, including myself, sued the company in a federal court in the United States. It's the first time that a group of journalists files this kind of suit. And basically what we want to know is who paid them to spy on us. It is basically the objective of the lawsuit, because it is an attack against freedom of expression, especially our work and private lives. Because it not only affects us in terms of our image or personal lives, but we are also putting people at risk who are collaborating with us so that things come to light, things that the government is trying to hide. So with all of this going on, you decided to leave the country momentarily. Can you tell me a little bit about that, whatever you feel comfortable sharing? Yes, I made the decision to leave preemptively because I already had a lot of information from my sources, sources who I trust and didn't meet yesterday. At first it was like, I need to take a break and work remotely, which was difficult because I was also the first to make the decision to leave the newsroom. Gabriela says that her colleagues supported her in the decision to leave the country for a time. Because I told them, my head is killing me, and this is drowning me. And she says her family learned about the investigation into her and her colleagues in El Faro, but that wasn't all that they learned. Intimidating messages toward my family as well. So it has also meant a kind of peace of mind for them that I am away, because the government every time we publish launches an attack by trolls, even on national television. And yes, this is scary. We have the example of Nicaragua. We are not far from that reality. Gabriela's original plan was to return in a few months, and in the meantime, keep working remotely. In April 2022, she revealed that a judge had documented the liberation of a gang leader of the Mara Salvatrucha that was still facing charges. She learned it through a judicial document that she obtained. That same month, the assembly controlled by Bukele approved gag reforms with between 10 to 15 years in prison for those who reproduce messages determined to be from the gangs. The point is to condemn people, journalists, communicators who explain the gang phenomenon that was born from the civil war and that no government knows how to control. And they wasted no time in implementing it. Gabriela and her colleague Oscar Martinez received a message from an employee of Bukele's party, Nuevas Ideas, letting them know that he had filed a criminal complaint against them with the attorney general's office. For creating anxiety in society for that publication. It's a legal document, right? It helps explain something about their war against the gangs. So she decided to keep out of the country for a while longer because she didn't feel safe. There is so much fanaticism. We're in a state of exception. I have no guarantees. They can arrest me if they suspect that I am a gang member. Even for having a tattoo or for creating a link as they are doing on social media, that we have a direct link with the gangs. 
And so it was that I ended my stay abroad. I don't know. I don't even want to be selfish, because I know that my colleagues are there. They are working hard and all, but it is not life, nor tranquility, to continue doing journalism under these circumstances and at the level that the president is imposing. Not only President Bukele, but also all his officials. It is exhausting, intimidating, it looks to interrupt your routines with your sources, family, and yourself. My colleagues from Nicaragua tell me that this was the first step that they experienced, and that right around the corner are the judicial processes. As Gabriela would have it, there is no shadow of a doubt that the people who attack her every time she publishes an investigation know she is outside of the country. It was also made public that she was part of a reception program run by Reporters Without Borders in Spain that lasted three months. This is the first time I'm talking about this. I feel ready to say it because I had not given an interview before. I did not feel comfortable. Right. The word that we're not saying here is exile. It's hard. Yeah. They say that you are self-exiled. I, I wanted to ask you about that. What does that mean to you right now? I don't like to use it. In fact, all my friends, when I have arrived in El Salvador, tell me, let's start the exile process. I understand that they do it in order to protect me and prevent me from following the same routine of locking myself in my house and not being able to enjoy myself. And I said no, I'm not going to do it legally, and they tell me, so you've self-exiled. But that word also shocks me, because I've left preventively for security reasons. So I still don't know how to give you a clear answer about what is happening to me. I think I'm just moving forward and measuring the consequences of what could happen through my posts, which shouldn't be the case. But it sounds like you don't regret publishing the cathedral investigation. I mean, looking back, would you do it all over again, knowing what would come next? I do not regret having published it. I have never questioned what I did and what I also plan to publish in almost a year that I have been out of the country. Because despite the fact that I have been tied up in a thousand ways in my own country, a self-proclaimed young president in favor of democracy, he is forcing journalists to self-exile or leave for security reasons. I think I'm going to have a limit, yes, because it's very tiring, it wears you out. What consequences can someone in my family have? All that comes to mind. We'll be back after the break. This year, Infato's birthday is going to be a big one. We're turning 25 in April. That's two decades and a half of independent journalism shining a light on Central America. But as we've discussed in this episode, it hasn't been a walk in the park and we're at a critical moment. We need your help to continue our work and urgently. One of the ways you can do that is by joining our crowdfunding community. You'll also get some perks. Take a look and consider chipping in every month what you'd spend on a cup of coffee at support.ilfaro.net. We hope you'll join us. We're back. This is El Hilo. 
In El Salvador, the government isn't only trying to stop investigative journalism of the kind that Gabriela does. There are more and more analysts and journalists working on television who can no longer do their jobs either. Okay, I'm going to send you a tweet in our chat. Sí. Okay. I know this is weird, but can you read it? Claro. Sure. Tonight was my last show as an interviewer on this show. That's Carlos Monterrosa, a Salvadoran university professor. Until August 2022, when he published the tweet he's reading, he was the primetime host and interviewer on Ocho en Punto, a television program on Channel 33, an open signal channel. I have submitted my unconditional resignation due to differences with the path of both the editorial line and the content management of the program. When Carlos resigned from Ocho en Punto, he started receiving messages from people he had interviewed from organizations, messages of encouragement, wishing him well. And also some voicing a little concern about what that meant. And inside the newsroom, Carlos told me that some of his co-workers sent him messages of encouragement. But in general, it is usually a little quiet. There is an effect of self-censorship, of self-intimidation, that you have to avoid expressing or pointing out things because you don't know who that message or that content might end up with because of the current environment and the quite polarized discourse. There is a rather Manichaean discourse about the good guys and bad guys. And the media also fall into that logic of good and bad. Carlos's resignation only makes full sense in the context of a series of closures on Channel 33. That they could give us as a guideline or a root of what was progressively taking place. Above all, I think that a generating event, in addition to the arrival of the government in 2019, but I think that the most generating event was with the change in the legislative correlation in the Assembly. Meaning when Nayib Bukele's party, Nuevas Ideas, obtained a majority in the Legislative Assembly. That had, of course, various implications. And a fact that I think was one of the first was that a program was broadcast on that channel called Focos. This program had a critical line of coverage. They did interviews, and they also did reporting. Then the directors of the program published a statement that the channel was no longer going to allow them to broadcast the program in the slot. Karen Fernandez and Saul Hernandez, the directors and hosts of the program, said in a final message that Focus's departure from the station caught them by surprise. That is, it wasn't their decision. It happened without room for negotiation and in the worst possible context. These are moments in which the state institutions have lost the trust of the citizens. We have a government that is intolerant of criticism and that rejects scrutiny from the press. In this context, the spaces for scrutiny of power are reduced to civil society organizations and the independent press. That was in March 2021. And a few months later, in June... Then the program Republica was closed. Gracias por seguir junto a nosotros en República. Continuamos debatiendo temas vinculadas a la seguridad pública. El programa It was an interview program, just in a morning slot. It was very early in the morning, from 6:30 to 8. That's where Carlos started working at the station, actually. But when they closed República, he was already with Ocho en Punto. So without warning anyone, he opened the program, commenting on the cancellation of República. 
At this time and stage in our country, freedom of expression is more needed than ever. So is journalism that promotes content and helps to generate informed perspectives of current events in our country. There are always moments to reconsider the decisions that have been made, and I hope that this message has an echo where it should reach. Maybe you're imagining that these kinds of statements cause problems for Carlos with his bosses, because he's basically being very critical of the company and doing it on the air. Yes, I figured. They could have told me something. They could have called me to a meeting or told me, look, why did you say this? But that didn't happen. Nothing happened. Just silence. And these cancellations, right? First Focus and then Republica. Was it the owners of the channel who made the call or was it a legal matter? Is it to avoid problems with the government? I mean, what could have been the motive behind the cancellations of these programs? I think that it's closer to the second point that you mentioned. The fact of avoiding conflict with the government that could generate economic, commercial, and administrative effects on the station. So the cancellation of Republica and of Focus, what did they mean to you in your position? They meant that there would gradually come a time when my situation was going to become more and more distant, or I was going to be more compromised. At some point, it crossed my mind that it may be that at the end of the year they tell me that the program will no longer continue, because you have been observing certain ideas or institutional logic, or because of all these decisions that have been made, and also because of what was happening at the national level in this continuous, let's say, relationship between the president's government and his speeches, towards certain media outlets that are classified or cataloged as the opposition, as opponents. To Carlos, it was more and more obvious that the government was grouping his program as part of opposition media, for a very simple reason. Carlos says that government sources didn't give them interviews and didn't answer when asked for their position on any given subject. Or they would tell us well. We took note. We let them know. But an answer never came. And it was also obvious that they were categorized as opposition because of the comments that people would make on social media. We had accounts or comments from certain accounts that were in the same narrative, in which they mentioned us. You are the opposition, all you people who do not support the government. So, of course, it was very constant and very curious that we saw the same users or the same accounts. I don't know whether to say whether they were actual people or troll accounts, but they were the same content. Did you feel like you were self-censoring after the cancellation of the two programs? Somehow they put you in that kind of dilemma. The issue of, let's see, what happened to my room to maneuver? I'm being limited even more on the type of topics, the guests. And of course, the question is never how to self-censor, but they put you in a situation where you rethink how to work and how to always maintain this idea of offering plurality, rigor and diversity to your viewers. But you also have an institutional environment that is hostile or, let's say, blocks you, totally shuts you down. That won't sit down with you for an interview on the country's issues. Carlos says that he no longer had room to maneuver in covering certain topics, that the list of possible sources and guests was getting shorter and shorter. He felt that he was being cut out of the picture, 
the program was no longer the same as before, a space to discuss current events in politics and the economy. And that's why he quit. I think your case... I think your case in particular and that of the station is interesting because of what we were saying, right? That it's an open signal channel, a debate program. So what do you think your case tells us about the state of freedom of expression in El Salvador? How bad have things gotten? I think it is reflecting that in El Salvador it is less and less possible to exercise freedom of expression and opinion on open television because what is expected of analysis and opinion on open television, they are basically spaces that replicate the official discourse, where you cannot question or demand accountability from the people making government decisions. So the great effect will be that people will not have reliable sources or elements to counterbalance or contrast what they will constantly be hearing from the official narrative. It's especially concerning this year, as candidates begin to emerge for the 2024 elections. And Bukele has announced that he'll seek re-election, despite the fact that the Salvadoran constitution prohibits immediate re-election. Just after the new year, the hosts of Ocho en Punto and other programs bid farewell to their audiences. The station canceled all of its live broadcasts. By the time we published this episode, they hadn't explained why. In this episode, we've talked about the judicial persecution and harassment on social media of journalists in Nicaragua and El Salvador, about the effects of this repression, exile, cancellations, about how, despite it all, our colleagues continue investigating the powerful. But there are other countries in Central America where freedom of expression is being eroded, and at an alarming rate. From January to October 2022, for example, the Association of Guatemalan Journalists recorded 105 attacks and limitations on the press. That makes almost 400 since the current president, Alejandro Yamatei, took office in early 2020. We're closely following what's happening in Guatemala, and particularly the prosecution of José Rubén Zamora, a renowned journalist who for years investigated corruption in the government. He was arrested in July 2022, and since then has been imprisoned in precarious conditions. Prosecutors have accused him of money laundering, influence peddling, and blackmail. Zamora has said that the case against him is a setup by President Yamatei for the revelations in his news outlet, El Periódico, of the government's abuses of power. In December, he said that the best-case scenario is for him to get out of prison once Yamatei leaves office. And I am patient. I have the truth on my side, and I am calm. His trial is scheduled to start in May of this year. That's when we'll take a deeper look at this case and the situation in Guatemala. But today we'll close by returning to Octavio, the Nicaraguan journalist with whom we began the episode. Octavio. What would you tell a colleague from another Central American country, like El Salvador or Guatemala, in a situation like yours? What can other colleagues learn from the experience of Nicaraguan journalists? I believe that the main lesson from journalism in Nicaragua is that you should not be silent in the face of these things. 
What is happening should be said. What we are experiencing should be shared. We cannot abstract ourselves from reality. We are citizens, we are human beings, but in the midst of all that pain that we carry, I believe that we have a responsibility to use the tool of journalism to be more professional and give a voice to precisely those people that the powerful want to crush and disappear from memory. The worst crime is always when they try to erase memory of the atrocities they committed. A fucking journalist needs to be there to remind them pues ahí tiene que haber un puto periodista que se lo recuerde. This episode was produced by me, Silvia Viñas, and edited by Eliezer Budasov and Daniel Alarcón. Bruno Celsa did the fact-checking. The sound design, mix, and music are by Elias González. Thanks to Oscar Martinez for his help. This episode is part of a project covering the situation of the press in the region in an alliance with El Faro and the support of the Canadian Fund for Local Initiatives. The rest of the Elilo team includes Daniela Cruzat, Mariana Zúñiga, Nausica Palomeque, Ines Renique, Denise Márquez, Samantha Proaño, Paola Leán, Laura Rojas Aponte, Juan David Naranjo Navarro, Esa Liliana Ulloa, and Camilo Jiménez Santofimio. Daniela Alarcón is our editorial director. Carolina Guerrero is the CEO of Radio Ambulante Studios. Pauchi Sasaki composed our theme song. Thank you for listening. Podcast from Radio Ambulante Studios and Vice News. We produce this episode in collaboration with El Faro English. 